When it's time to seed grass, fertilize turf, or add a pop of color to your yard, Blaine's Farm and Fleet's got you covered with unbeatable deals on lawn and garden essentials. Find value on everything you need in-store or online at farmandfleet.com. Have you ever looked at a potato and wonder, how did people know to eat this? And then how did it make its way into food around the world? I'm Stephanie Hoff for the Midwest Farm Report, and this has been an interest of Lorana Snyder's for about a decade. Lorana is the horticulturist and farm coordinator at Cincinnati Mounds. She's actually going to be leading a discussion on the history of common vegetables on March 9th. Lorana gives us a little preview, and yes, she starts with the potato. Potato is kind of one of the fun ones because it's had such an interesting journey throughout its lifetime. So it originated in the New World, so in the Americas, um, specifically in Peru and the Andes. The tuber, it's kind of an unassuming vegetable, like you have to dig it up and you have to know how to utilize it. So the Peruvian people domesticated it over the course of thousands of years. And then when we saw, you know, the shift of Europeans over to the Americas, there was that exchange you know, of information and goods. And the potato was one of the things that was in that exchange. And as it shifted its way into the old world, it kind of had an interesting journey in how it progressed there. You know, some folks were nervous about it at first because it's really similar to a poisonous crop in Europe. So it's part of the nightshade family and deadly nightshade is something that exists in the old world. People were really nervous about starting to use that crop because it resembled something that they've always been told not to use. So there was a bit of a, you know, a learning curve for people to be able to focus on that crop and learn how to use it. And it really found its niche in Ireland specifically because it's a crop that grows underground. So if you have invading forces or any sort of uh, military excursions, you know, it's not a crop that can be easily destroyed, much like wheat and rye. It holds all of its goodness underground, so it's just not going to get destroyed as much. But it also is kind of a powerhouse of minerals and and carbohydrates and just for life-sustaining capabilities, realistically, in some parts of Ireland, folks there survived off of the milk from cows and potatoes, and that was literally their diet for years, and they did okay. You know, when we saw the great potato famine in Ireland, it's like, what caused that? And, you know, what should we start looking for now and even continuing on with potato and making sure that we don't limit the scope of its genetics to a point where we start running into more issues like what happened during the potato famine. Looking at the past so that we can better withstand any problems in the future, making sure we have genetic diversity in potatoes. Is there Mm -hmm. another example and another vegetable crop where history was a, a good lesson for how we can prevent problems today? I mean, we're seeing it in not a vegetable so much as a fruit crop, but the first one that like springs into mind specifically is the banana. You know, that's a crop that you're going to see in almost uh, pretty much every single grocery store and even gas stations in the U.S. And the banana that we know today is even vastly different from the banana from, you know, like my parents' time and my grandparents' time. So that, that particular banana was first brought over, you know, started becoming really popular um, in the early 1900s, um, you know, and they come from South America, or at least that's where they're primarily grown. I think originally the crop comes from Asia, but that banana started noticing a lot of um, bacterial defects in the plant and started having a lot of issues with this fungus. And it just eventually got completely wiped out. Like, I don't even think they have a lot of genetic material left from that plant anymore just because of that issue. 
So we had to switch to a different banana, which is actually interesting. The reason why when you have banana flavored items, they taste different than what we like taste in bananas today. And that's because that banana flavor was kind of set up when we had that original banana to the United States. So it is actually a different taste that you're getting, which is really cool. (laughs) But we're still seeing in today's modern crop of bananas an issue with the same thing with that bacterium coming in and starting to wipe out acres and acres and acres because of the lack of genetic diversity, because we've bred the banana to a specific point. So being able to utilize interbreeding with more traditional bananas that we find in Asia that have larger seeds and may not have those qualities and those traits that we prefer as consumers could really actually keep that plant from from going extinct. It sounds like these examples, you know, the crop had changed over time because of consumer taste. Was that common? Like, is it usually the consumer that drives change in a crop? So I think a lot of the factors, some of it is consumer taste. Some of it is marketability. So obviously, you know, like in the case of tomatoes, you're going to be able to market a larger, more red tomato much easier than you are kind of one of like the heritage varieties or heirloom varieties that are like super wonky and like not consistent and all in shape, but may have superior flavor. A lot of times people will go towards something that tends to be more uniform because it's easier to use if you're dealing with the same thing each time. And then the other factor that really plays in is transportation. You know, we have this big, huge global food system, and if you have a product or a specific crop that maybe is like a 15 out of 10 on flavor, like it's the best tomato you've ever tasted, but it bruises really easy and it doesn't store for very long and it just goes bad a lot faster, you know, you're not going to market that crop because you can't get it to the consumer in time for it to be fresh. So, yeah, it's kind of like a, a little bit of consumer input and then also a lot on metrics on transportation, like can it get to where it needs to go with enough time for it to be fresh? And then uniformity, you know, if you're trying to package something, you need it to be pretty standard in size across the board. Otherwise, it's going to be really tricky to to package and to ship. And there you have it, a sneak peek at what Lorana Snyder will be discussing on March 9th. You can join virtually, just register at org on the events tab. Lorana Snyder is the horticulturist and farm coordinator at the Cincinnati Mound Center in the southwest corner of Wisconsin. For the Midwest Farm Report, I'm Stephanie Hoff.